What you're about to listen to is my conversation with wisdom teacher Phil McLemore. He has made uh, meditation and transformative work a life's work, and you can tell that he's quite passionate about it. Today we sit down to push back and forth against each other about what it means to live the good life. I simply want to preface this conversation with the information that I used to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as the Mormons. And Phil still operates uh, from within that paradigm as he often is working with Latter-day Saints or Mormons in his effort to initiate this transformative work in their lives. At the beginning of this conversation in several places, Phil refers to some Mormon Uh, rhetoric or words that some of the audience members listening may not be familiar with. And just to recognize that it's insider language that's being used and to please hang in there as this conversation is one of the best, if not the best conversation I've ever had on this podcast or any other. And I hope that it is meaningful to each of you. So now on to the Almost Awakened podcast. This is the Almost Awakened Podcast, a no-nonsense approach to spirituality. Here we dive deep into the wisdom traditions while acknowledging insightful breakthroughs in science, psychology, and human development. Our goal is to explore the good life and the very best of spirituality, no-nonsense required. Check us out at almostawaken.org, where you can check out past episodes, make a donation, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources we shared. And now, today's podcast episode. Phil McLemore, welcome to back to the Almost Awakened podcast. I was going to say welcome to the Almost Awakened podcast, but this is your second trip, my friend. How are you doing? Yes, it is. I'm doing great. Good, good. You and I have had a conversation over the last week or so. You reached out to me and said, hey, I've been working on a few things and thought maybe it'd be a good time to get back together and have a good conversation. And we ended up chatting about a various, well, we started chatting about various topics and uh, we kind of got going. I, I want to read our actual text message here because I think it'll give us a good place to kind of start off. Well, we we were struggling to come up with a meditation program I was proposing we weren't quite sinking on the whole thing. And you, uh, in your wisdom, asked the question if there was anything energizing me. Yeah. And in fact, there was uh, the discussion we're going to have today. And actually, we only started that actual conversation yesterday. And you said, hey, let's... <laughs> let's try to replicate that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you said a message. You said, uh, you know, you said, uh, not sure how much you've done on the morality issue post-religion, but I think it's a vital topic with many nuances. It also relates to inner work as certain life behaviors either support or disrupt inner work. And that, that's the comment, this idea that certain life behaviors interrupt or, or disrupt the inner work that's going on. And so I thought maybe we could talk today about what it means to live the good life because you and I had a phone conversation yesterday and we were pushing back at each other. We were, you were saying like, you know, th- this is what a good life looks like. And I'm saying, well, my life doesn't look like that. And I think it's still a good life. And, <laughs> and so I wanted to maybe open up the floor first for you to pose what you mean by there are certain behaviors that disrupt or interrupt the inner work of life and maybe share how that's shown up in your own life and your perception of how that's shown up with others. 
Okay. Well, if you can be patient just for a bit, I'll lay the foundation for that and give you a little history here that has brought me to this energization. Absolutely. I, I think we would agree that human beings are strange creatures in the sense that human beings are capable of absolute divine behavior and expressions. They're also capable of the most hideous, evil, and devilish behavior. And, you know, typically we talk about higher and lower nature. So I think we'd be in agreement there. Um, yeah, by the way, the, absolutely. Yeah, the discussions about morality, which is the category that deals with choices and behaviors that, in my opinion, should promote and nourish the higher nature. Um, so it's the discussion of good and bad, right and wrong, sinful and holy. Uh, it's my view that a proper understanding and practice of morality, which for me includes simply mature and responsible behavior, is essential for healthy, positive, productive living, and certainly for deep spiritual growth. Um, not exclusively, but religion's been the primary institution for defining and promoting morality. Um, religions have done a good job in many cases. They have distorted and perverted it in others. Um, Can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. So, to, um, I don't want to do that. I want to I give you time to kind of set the plate, but I want to... I guess I want to poke inside your head for a moment. Do you think that religion is the best tool we have for the general population to give people um, a moral footing to at least set off on the first half of life with? Because I think you and I would agree that on the second half of life, a lot of us can pick and choose different tools. And maybe there's tools outside of religion that serve that purpose too. For instance, as I think you would certainly be an advocate for meditation. Sure. what are your thoughts on religion? At least all of us kind of on that first half of life, is it the best tool? Done well, I think it probably is. I, I mean, I think there needs to be a community and institution, institutions that have as their mission to promote healthy, responsible, moral living, stability, you know, mental, moral, emotional stability for individuals and society. Um, it's just that it's been done so poorly in many cases. Uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. Yeah. And and we're in a state now where in a, in the modern and postmodern age, religion is obviously in steep decline. Um, the positive aspect, Which, by the way, that, it scares me a little bit. I, yes. I am I am anti-religion at this point in my life. Like I think religion holds us all back from growing. We all think we've got the right answer. Right. It's us versus them, and those are deep barriers to the second half of life of of being open taking, I guess, taking the world as it is, looking at people as other human beings. Um, but at the same time, I'm worried that without religion around, most of the population is going to be in that, if we were to use Fowler stages of faith, for instance, stage three, most people are going to be in binary thinking and religion really does keep them from wandering. And um, I don't know what the right wording would be, but religion keeps somebody from not having yet the tools to do it on their own and now they're just kind of winging it out there without those tools. Right. Yeah, I think that's a valid concern and a, certainly a valid perspective. Um, the positive side to religion's decline is we, we are rejecting the unhealthy, the meaningless, and the superstitious aspects of religion. Uh, I'm certainly on record in, on my Sunstone article, uh, Hindering the Saints, which people ought to uh, read and have tattooed on their back. Oh, I think is tattoo are tattoos immoral? I can't remember. Tat- we'll <laughs> to some to some certain systems they are, aren't they? Uh, anyway, I'm on record there in describing bad religion, which often 
revolves around purity codes and assessments of worthiness. Which, Judging people based on what we perceive on the outside, right? Which yeah, is what a tattoo it, is. Yeah, it always, it becomes, you know, these worthiness and purity codes typically become superficial and distortions of genuine spiritual life. So that's a, the positive aspect to the uh, rejection of religion. The negative aspect <clears throat> is is a proper understanding and practice of morality is the baby that's getting thrown out with the bathwater. So, and I find even many who identify themselves as spiritual but not religious seem confused and uncertain about the place of morality in their life and in spiritual practice. So it's it's up in the air. And maybe it should be, and again, I'm going to interrupt you a bunch. It should, maybe it should yeah. be acknowledged that religion is, so religion is this idea that there is an invisible outer authority out there that we can't see exactly. We can kind of feel he's there once in a while, but he's the guy who makes the rules because otherwise how do we decide who gets to make the rules and who doesn't, right? So having the outer source make the rules allows us all to go like, oh, okay, he took care of it. It's done. This is the real, the real right way to do things. When you let go of that outer authority, that, that source in the sky, and whether you believe in God or not, when you understand the complexity of various religious faiths and various religious gods, and you choose like, oh, maybe my God's right, and maybe my God doesn't even exist. Now that moral code has to be created somewhere else. And so the, the theist or monotheist look back at, say, me, who's for the most part an atheist. They would look at me and they would go, then how do you choose your moral code? And to some degree, I have to be honest with them. I am just winging it. I think I've developed a really damn good moral code, but I'm, I'm winging it. I'm coming up with it within myself, right? And so who does have a right to choose what is morality and what is right and wrong, and how do we even come to that? Yeah, good, good reflection and perspective. Um, oddly, it's not odd, but God, from my perspective, is not only outside of us, he's also deep within us. And so even a person struggling with what their actual belief of the external God is supposed to be, I think good people, I mean, honest seekers, if they'll go deep within, yeah. they're going to find a core to um, develop a healthy morality. So Yeah, they want to show up in the world as a better human being than they were the day before, and it, it has them doing the inner work. Right. And, of course, the problem with the external God is so much human nonsense been, has been imposed on the nature and character of God. It's kind of a cheap way of imposing human um, morality and control, you know, through the authority of God onto others. So that's a yeah. problem. Yeah. So the spiritual path is always about seeking, discerning, and knowing the true nature and character of God, which of course I believe is going to be always life enhancing. So love it. Um, Sorry, I've sidetracked you enough. I'll yeah, let no, you get I've, this yeah. is good stuff. We good. this is yeah. And I think the in. listeners are gonna enjoy it too. And and I again you and I talked about this yesterday. That you and I kind of poking at each other and holding our ground and and letting the audience kind of listen to those two perspectives. Because I think the way you've led your life and the things you hold to be true and the way at which you've arrived at those, I can't do anything but honor that and accept that as truth. Um, it seems real to me. You seem like a, a wise person in the conversations I've had with you on and off the air. I've met you a couple times in person. Uh, I've listened to a couple of presentations that you've done. You are a wisdom teacher. And, and I in no way come to this conversation saying my way is the right way, your way is the wrong way, only that, only that I haven't experienced inner work exactly as you describe it, and I want the listeners to kind of hear, because there's a thousand different ways to do it, and I want to see if us poking at each other kind of shines a light on what are the real things that kind of surface to the top, if that makes sense. Oh, that's fabulous, yeah. 
Um, hey, just a little history that's got me jazzed about this issue. So I spent 30 years as a LDS Institute of Religion director and a military chaplain. And during those 30 years, I listened to thousands of people share their life struggles and tried to provide good advice and counsel. So I've had some experience in understanding the struggles and the guts of other people's lives, particularly when things go bad. That's when they come. <laughs> um, when I retired from the military in late 2004, I had three personal objectives. Number one was avoid personal counseling <laughs> because it's torturous and tormenting to be involved over and over in people's depth life struggles. It's just taxing. Number two, to develop relationships with the great minds in and around Mormonism who were assessing the truth and value of Mormon teaching, claims, and culture, so forth. I wanted to be a part of that community. And then I wanted to establish myself as a meditation inner path teacher. Those were my three objectives. So in early 2005, in my efforts to get into the expanded Mormon community, I had a good friend, intelligent, kind person, uh, invite me to a special meeting in Provo. And this was a meeting with um, kind of prominent members of the uh, alternative Mormon community or expanded Mormon community, uh, people involved in thoughtful analysis and criticism and suggestions for Mormonism and so forth. So we, we drove down to Provo for this meeting with uh, this group. And there, and there were, uh, you know, some prominent, well-known uh, bright Mormon folks, and the whole idea was to sit around and discuss the major issues of Mormonism at the time, what our point of view is, what our suggestions were, and so on and so forth. So as we got in there and sat down, I was quite excited, and then all of a sudden, to my surprise, somebody cracks out the alcohol, uh, most of the people in the room are drinking, laughing, then these dirty jokes started, and all of a sudden, I, I, I'm telling you, I was in an absolute state of shock. I felt like I was 15 years old, sneaked off from my parents and was doing, you know, immoral, nasty things I wasn't supposed to do. But in the context of a immature teenager, it was absolutely shocking. And I was just stunned that this group of arguably intellectually intelligent people had this need to, to violate kind of traditional teachings and, you know, moral standards to somehow express something that had been stifled, but it was done in such an immature way. And the dirty jokes were so nasty. I, 10 minutes in, I just stood up, saluted, and walked out, uh, walked out of the room and went home. Since then, uh, I've just been observing uh, loss of faith in Mormonism, which sadly results in loss of faith in God. And then soon behind that is the questioning and if not the abandonment of what I would call traditional moral values. Now, it's not just a Mormon thing. Uh, I'm in touch with a lot of conservative Christianity, and this very same thing is going on in, in uh, conservative Christianity. So um, I'm observing all of this, and like you mentioned, somewhat concerned about what the consequence of this abandonment is going to be. Well, in addition to all of this, I'm involved in yoga and Eastern spiritual communities and to some degree, New Age communities, which I'm a little dim on the New Age. I, I find it to be an immature distortion of Eastern spiritual teachings. But in any case, 
um, a broad range of Eastern spiritual communities and then yoga meditation communities specifically because I'm deep into the yoga tradition. And so I began to have experiences in yoga meditation retreats and gatherings in which are a number of people exiting Christianity and wanting to explore the Eastern side of spirituality. So as I mentioned to you the last time, in 2006, I met a gentleman named Roy Eugene Davis. He became my yoga guru. Uh, in 2008, he ordained me to be part of, he ordained me to be in the lineage of his yoga tradition. And then 2009, I started teaching at his Center for Spiritual Awareness. And almost immediately, I, I found the, a group of either new age types or explorers of Eastern spirituality or ex-Christians coming into this world that had this attitude that they were now liberated from religion, they were liberated from morality, they were liberated from law and moral standards and commandments and so on and so forth. Um, one of the reasons I that Roy was so appealing to me is he's one of the few spiritual teachers that have a balance, a perfect, ba in my opinion, a perfect balance of teaching. He emphasized on one hand, rational thinking, emotional maturity, responsible, moral, mature lifestyle and behavior, along with deep meditation and inner awakening. Now, I've learned from and experienced many of the popular modern spiritual teachers. And I'm telling you, few, if any of them, emphasize moral practice and behavior uh, it surprises me a little bit. I, I think they're of the opinion that if they can get inner life going, the morality is going to naturally follow. Um, having said that, my primary spiritual teacher is Jesus. I mean, I mean, he says, I will come to you, and I see no reason to have an, an intermediary between myself and him. And I find in Jesus the same balance in his teachings in life, this emphasis on Rational thinking, emotional maturity, responsible moral lifestyle, deep, deep inner life, discovering the inner kingdom. So anyway, in one of my first uh, adventures in teaching a meditation uh, class at the Center for Spiritual Awareness, um, there was a, I started with the moral practice side of things and how moral living affects inner spiritual practice and meditation. And once I started into right, wrong, good, and bad, this lady, she just was so angry, so agitated. She just couldn't restrain herself. And she just jumped up and started screaming and yelling, who the hell are you to tell me how to live, what to do, what's right and wrong? I mean, she just started tearing me up. And she did not expect that, you see. She'd been to other retreat centers, and it was all, you know, God loves you, we love you, come in, accept, accept, do what you want. And here I was, uh, seemingly to her, preaching the standard Christian sermon. In any case, um, I said, oh, please, calm down. I said, look, I'm not going to give you a list of what is sinful or not sinful or what is good and what is evil. I'm going to teach a principle. And the principle is, if you have a desire a behavior, an inclination, a practice that reinforces your ego nature, your self-centered sort of nature, your false limited sense of self, I'm going to argue that that's probably um, immoral and not helpful. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to interrupt your inner work. So no, 
specifics for me, just a principle. If it reinforces what we're calling ego nature and, you know, and kind of inner spiritual teaching, and it's not empowering you to awaken to, to true self or essence of being within, in my mind, it falls into this camp of, of uh, immoral or unhealthy or, or sinful. Sinful's got so much baggage. It's a term that I, I try not to use anymore. Um, and most seem to agree because most agreed that settled her down and on we went. Um, later in that retreat, one of the other longtime members there, he was a very popular yoga teacher, very good looking guy. Uh, he was single. He had classes of, you know, 50, 80 cute girls several times a week in his yoga studio. And he'd been on a meditation path for almost 20 years. And he was 10 years ahead of me. Well, Roy ordained me, not him. I'm teaching. He's not teaching. And it bothered him a little bit. And he came up to me afterwards and he said, uh, I, I can tell by your teaching that you're more advanced than I am in this inner work and this meditation practice, but I don't get it because I've been doing it 10 years longer than you. And I knew him and I knew his lifestyle. And even on the retreat, he was sleeping with this girl from Europe that had popped up that was quite cute. And, and I said to him, I said, look, I, I really like you. You're an interesting, talented, intelligent person, but holy smokes, man, you're, you're a wild sex addicted creature, you know, and it, 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 reinforces your lower nature and it disrupts your inner work um you, you got to calm down and get control of your sexual urges that was my advice to him because it was clearly disrupting his inner work roy saw it and you know he was accepted there and embraced there but he was undermining himself by in my opinion a lack of of, of, of moral behavior so last point um as i have witnessed the increased number of people leaving mormonism in particular christianity in general um, I see this reassessment and questioning of what I would call traditional moral values, the, even the glorification and rejection of these values, the promotion of really no boundaries, no limitations. And then just in this last month, as I've been listening to podcasts, which I love to do, um, there's this communication, particularly among the younger group, of free use of any and all mind-altering substances, free and open sexuality, questioning of marriage, uh, little need for sexual fidelity in marriage, the view that marriage and children is too binding to my authentic self and my true self and what I want to do, the promotion of polyamory and stuff that drives me just nuts. That's what's got me all energized here on this topic. So there you go. Well, so this is where I'm going to push back. And, um, and I'm going to grant on the front end of the conversation here that if if the goal, and again, I'm going to when you said some of that, this is going to take me a minute to get out. So the, the, when you said some of that, some of that poked me because some of that is my life. That's, that's how I live. And I'll try to explain maybe some of it. And then I also want to say like, um, when you look at each of these things, so sexuality, for instance, is one of the things you mentioned. You mentioned a responsible moral lifestyle. We talked about drugs. Um, we talked about uh, the inner work. There, I think, is a multitude of paths that allow somebody to do inner work. And I grant on the front end of this conversation that I'm open to the possibility, and I actually think the likelihood, that what you're describing is, the, is a more effective way in which to do the inner work and to come out the other side, um, I don't want to say more developed, but something along those lines that you that that by 
putting distance, intentionally putting distance between you and the things that serve your ego, you are working towards your real self and getting away from the ego, which really isn't, it's, it's a piece of us that protects us and it's been developed over 2 million years through evolution, right? Sure. And, but I also want to acknowledge, like when you describe the folks telling uh, dirty jokes and having some drinks and, you know, and, and again, I don't know to what degree that party went. There would also be a line at which I would go, okay, now you've crossed my line and I'm going to probably leave too. But I would have stayed a lot longer than you <laughs> having a good time because um, when I sit with my friends and my friends are good human beings who are reading and thinking, they're deconstructing, they want to be good to people around them, they don't want to cause more trauma or pain in the world, they're sensitive to the trauma that all of us carry with us. When I'm with my friends, we drink sometimes. When we drink, it sometimes leads to... Um, foolish jokes and, and, you know, those kinds of things. But it also leads to all of us relaxing a little bit. I think alcohol has that impact. And when you meet somebody new, it allows you to quickly, uh, more quickly, build a little bit of trust and have a little bit more of um, vulnerability with each other. And so I think human beings are always shielding themselves and protecting themselves. And you might make the argument that, well, the path that I'm on leads to those same things and more effectively. And, and I might be able to grant that, but I also say there's, I want a life that has pleasures to it. And I want a life that on some level does, is egoic in places. And, and sometimes I'm doing both. Sometimes, um, whether it comes to uh, conscious altering tools, some people or folks use magic mushrooms or ayahuasca or, um, you know, LSD. And, and I think even cannabis to a, a lesser extent. I think those things, I, I, there's no doubt in my mind, those things can be tools to begin doing introspective work. And having had experiences as both a teenager, as well as hanging around people as, a, as an adult, a full recognition that those can be tools. And I've been, the people I spend time with, uh, for those who use those things, they tend to both use them recreationally, as well as use them to be introspective. And I see them making deep connections about who they are and what life is about and what, what it means to be a human being and what kinds of behaviors we humans do. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come to you and say that I guess my conclusion would be that I, I, I think life has to be somewhat more balanced. And, and I'm not poking at you, although it's going to feel that way because I, I don't, I'm not delegitimizing your path. I don't want to do that at all. But I want to recognize that for those of us, me included, who are both having fun and feeding the ego and on a daily basis also doing the inner work and seeing myself make progress, seeing myself as a better human being today than I was two years ago, deeply because of the things I'm reading and thinking about. You know, for instance, right now on Audible, I'm reading um, the book Tao Te Ching, the essential translation of the ancient Chinese book of the Tao. Yeah. And and I, Dao, I think, is how it's, it's pronounced. Yeah. And um, the book is meaningful. And I'm listening on my, I'm in the shower. I'm listening on my way to work. I'm putting those principles into practice as I talk to other human beings and interact. And I'm going to say that there, that if you're there, maybe there might be room for a debate on the speed and quickness of one's inner work and development, as well as maybe a balance to also bringing in the pleasures of life and enjoying those. And 
the audience is going to be hearing me and I think they're going to be hearing you say there's no room for fun. And they're going to hear me say that you're not having any fun. <laughs> and, and I don't think that's what's happening. Cause I think you're smiling and happy and you're, you're having a blast. And I think you really deeply believe that a constant effort to put off the ego is the more effective way to do it. And so let's push back and forth at each other and let's talk about some of that. And I've got other questions and I've got other <laughs> things I want to say about these things, but I'll let you comment first. Yeah, no, thank you. <clears throat> um, just to kind of finish off, maybe foundationally, you know, ancient wisdom traditions recognize this dimension. So like in the yoga tradition, you've got what are called the yamas and the niyamas. They're the commandments, the do's and don'ts. So typically it's like nonviolence, truthfulness, sexual control, honesty, not being materialistic, uh, self-discipline, study of truth, examination of yourself, Surrender of selfish tendencies. That's all in the yoga. Ancient I love yoga. all of those. All of yeah, those yeah. I swear by. I lo- those, yeah. aren't, those aren't part of what I'm talking about. I love yes. those. Yes, yes. And, and in Buddhism, you know, you've got the eightfold path, the right, right intention, view, speech, conduct, livelihood, effort, so on and so forth. The problem with those, I, I love those things and accept all those things and see those as foundational. The problem is they went in this weird ascetic tradition where a person denies human life almost completely by denying the ego, they deny all aspects of the egoic interaction with the world. And so, you know, you got these naked guys living in caves, barely eating and certainly not participating in, in sexuality and I mean, extreme, extreme asceticism. And for me, that's just as, much of an extreme as the, I mean, you have to remember, I was born in 1950, so I'm a teenager in the 1960s, meaning what? I was fully and completely alive to the blossoming of sex, drugs, rock and roll, right? That was yeah. my yeah. teenage environment, and I saw the the consequence of that. But in any case, I, I think, I do think we, I, I do believe there's an area of absolute truth, and we seek for that. But then below that is the struggle that we're talking about. Below that is the struggle of, you know, what is good living, effective living, valid expressions of life and personality and pleasure, right? Um, And I don't believe there is absolute truth there. I, I believe that there can be quite a variety of experience and expression within certain parameters. I mean, I, I think we would agree that the ability to delay gratification, to have a certain level of self-discipline, to be accountable and responsible, mutual respect. I mean, I think we would agree that in the absence of those things, life falls apart. Yeah. 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 So, and, and there's extremes in behavior. Like we would go, like I, I would look at all human beings as, as they're acting out in the world. And I would say most human beings are trying to show up and they're trying to be decent human beings and, and making their mistakes too. But there are also human beings in the world that are causing great trauma and harm with intent right. and, and that those life choices are very bad. You're causing destruction in your wake. You know, we talked yesterday on the phone, uh, uh, people who abuse children, right. people who kidnap, people who murder, right? And then, then obviously we'd all agree on that, but then we have to back up a, a line or two and go like, but you know, there's other things too, uh, financial fraud and all kinds of things yep. that humans do in the world that aren't just little nicks and pokes that we're doing as we're just not understanding each other fully when we meet each other. Right. Correct. Yeah. And, and my, you know, my point of view is properly defined immorality and sinfulness, so to speak. I mean, some reasonable definition, not religious excess. The problem with 
immorality properly understood is it creates a restless mind, a restless heart, turbulent emotions, turbulence in relationships, and then as we've talked about ego reinforcement. See, all of those are impediments to inner inner work. That's why they're a problem. And inner work is the the challenge of the second half of life. That's why I see it so important. Now, these other areas, you know, these, you know, the areas of what we would call in Mormonism, word of wisdom areas or substance here. I mean, normally morality ends up revolving around substances and sex. Yeah, right. Those yeah. are the two things. Because if people start doing those things, they might start thinking for themselves a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, let's talk about the, let's get specific, you know, uh, let's talk about substances and sex. And, Please, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, word of wisdom stuff. I, yeah, of course, I, off the bat. You know, I, I think this obsession with tea and coffee is nonsense. I mean, it's just it makes no sense whatsoever. Alcohol, man, I'm see, I have a because of what I've witnessed. Can people use alcohol responsibly, and can it be a part of fellowship and friendship and fun and relaxation, as you've talked about? I can't deny that, and I'm sure that for many people that is the case. My personal experience, again, as being a a chaplain primarily with military guys who often tend to drink in excess and in other counseling where alcohol and alcoholism disrupts and destroys lives. Um, if I could, I probably would toss alcohol out the window. You know, if I were yeah. running a religion, I wouldn't ban it, but boy, I'd sure, I'd sure warn about the dangers. I see no benefit in tobacco whatsoever. None. If you are aware of any, no, no, no. I, unless you're rubbing cattle, I guess. I'm... I guess. Um, so, um, yeah, the alcohol thing, I see it used responsibly, but it, for me, and maybe I just don't have enough experience, it seems to be the minority of folks, not the majority. Um, uh, alcoholism yeah. and abuse of alcohol just seems to be the… And I would agree with you in that while alcohol can be a little bit of a social lubricant, it is strange that our society did a war on drugs and the drugs it chose to make really deeply illegal, like Schedule One, versus the drugs that we're allowed to have, right? Coffee is a drug, but we're all for coffee outside of Mormonism. We're all for coffee because it makes everybody a better worker inside the system, right? You drink a cup of coffee, you're more productive for the day. You wake up a little easier, you get moving a little faster. Um, I think alcohol serves a purpose that, for the most part, we tried it once with prohibition, but that alcohol is one of these legal substances in society because it really doesn't it gets you to have a good time for the night. You wake up the next day with a headache and you get right back at your life again. <laughs> I think the drugs that I would want to point to and say, let's make space for these drugs in the introspective good life are the drugs that cause you to be introspective. I don't think alcohol does that other than you, maybe you make a mistake the night before and you wake up up the next day and you have lots of resentment and regrets about how you behaved. And I think there's a place for mistakes too. I think allowing human beings some social freedom to err and make mistakes. And some of those serious also is a place for us. Cause I think most human beings don't, as you pointed out earlier, don't really do the inner work until hard things are happening. Right. Um, and, and sometimes the mistakes we make are, are the hard things that happen and compel us to look inward and to change, to make some changes in our life. But the drugs I would want to point out would be things like I said earlier, ayahuasca, LSD, magic mushrooms, and I think cannabis. And I think the reason those drugs have been made schedule one, and there's been this giant war on drugs, is because those substances tend to help people to move out of binary thinking. And at least that's been my experience uh, as I've 
entered the second half of life. I used cannabis a ton as a kid and it was recreational. And I, and I remember my brain being fuzzy and, and not really being able to, you know, be as coherent as a, as a standard human being walking around would be. And I, and I wasn't using it to be introspective. As an adult, as I watch people who use that, I see a lot of introspection happening. I am aware of people who have used ayahuasca. Um, and that tends, has tended to be a huge moment in their life where they pivoted into a deeper introspective life. Um, I've seen folks who have taken uh, MDMA and in that night got so vulnerable with their partner that they solved deep relationship issues that I don't think they would have done otherwise. I've seen uh, and heard and talked to folks who have used magic mushrooms and LSD and have had similar experiences overcoming trauma in ways that had they not had access to those tools, it would have, it would have taken 10 years of therapy if they would have chosen to do it, or it would have taken you know 10 more years of thinking and wrestling. And in one night, they're knocking these things out. And you can see it having an impact for not just days or weeks or even months, but sometimes years afterward, uh, you can just see that that was a pivotal moment for them. And so on this drug issue, this it's kind of a cool place that we're, we're talking. I want to acknowledge that, again, it may not be, you could make the argument for me that it's not the most effective way to do this, but I'm also going to push back and say it is an effective way. Yeah, I, I have a bias probably that stems from my personal experience. And most of my personal experience with uh, drugs was in the 60s, early 70s, and the impact that it had on my friends. And I, I saw the widespread use of marijuana really stagnating people's lives. Uh, it it inhibited, it, it, it uh, kept them from being uh, productive and moving forward and mature and responsible. And, you know, they're covering yeah. up and hiding issues yeah. rather than. And LSD, uh, I had a friend, very close friend whose life was completely ruined. And the thing that concerned, and maybe there's a better product now, but it seemed to destroy his ability to focus and concentrate. Um, I had to sit with him and study with him every night to get him through college because he couldn't, he'd use so much LSD, he couldn't stay focused on the material. And uh, after I got him through college, then uh, he got a job and then started embezzling. He was an accountant, started embezzling money to support the drug habit, <laughs> ended up in jail yeah. and ended up dead. But yeah. And I hear these cases um, too, by the way, I want to acknowledge that there are negative experiences to various degrees and that no thing is yeah. a fix all for everyone. Um, now, recently, yeah. I've become aware of a drug being used in the Veterans Administration for uh, military members with PTSD, and they're finding that the use of this drug, like you said, eliminates about 10 years of deep, painful, complicated counseling and therapy. Yeah, yeah. And it's because it takes them out of the experience of trauma, gives them a sense of themselves separate from trauma, which consumes them, and they suddenly realize, whoa, I, I can live this way. I don't have, trauma is external to me and I can somehow let it go. And so I, I know that that same thing has happened with individuals who, let, let's say, have a good trip. I'm going to date myself by language um, on, on a mushroom or some other drug. And they suddenly have an experience of oneness. You know, they're no longer limited by the duality of time and space and ego and personality. They have an experience of oneness with life, oneness with creation, maybe oneness with God or a deeper reality. And just that awakening is a seismic shift in awareness that um, 
sometimes is more than just an individual experience, but a shift in the way they perceive things and then a shift in the way they live or what they then choose to follow up on to live a more expanded life, so to speak. So I can't deny that that's a possibility. I, I mentioned to you yesterday the story of uh, Richard Alpert, who became Ram Dass. So if, maybe you remember Timothy O'Leary from history. Yeah. yeah. But he was a Harvard professor who got into psychedelics and was experimenting with psychedelics with his students. And they were sociology teachers. And Alpert was uh, another professor there. And they conspired to do this kind of experimentation, really with the intent of consciousness expansion, life expansion. And, and it was a mixed bag. I mean, some people had bad trips and it was traumatizing to them. And some people had expanded awareness and it opened up a whole new dimension for them. And that was certainly the case with the two of them. However, as it played out in, in Alpert's life, um, he had such wonderful experiences with the combination of drugs that he was using. I mean, he felt this inner harmony and peace and connection with life and the, the joyfulness of that and so forth. But then his day-to-day life became depressing and he found himself dependent on the substances to experience that. And he realized he couldn't be on substances all the time. So he ended up traveling to India became the disciple of a famous Indian guru over there. He, he tells the story that I shared with you yesterday. He carried his psychedelics with him. <laughs> and, uh, and this guru took a handful of these psychedelic drugs, slammed them down, sat there for a while and had no effect, and then said to him, is that it? Is that all you got? And that was a changing moment for him because he believed at that point he could experience the same thing without the downside of drugs by deepening his consciousness out of his essence of being or true nature. Um, Well, okay, that's obviously a possibility. He reports it with some clarity and detail. That's been my personal experience. I don't want any mind-altering substances because I've got more than I can handle with deep states of meditation and something I'll bring up later, uh, inner energy work that I can only describe as orgasmic. So, uh, we can talk about that in a, in a little bit when we get to the sex discussion. But I've got so much going on there, I'm, I'm afraid substances would take me away from that. But I've been doing this for over 20 years every day, seriously, as a life vocation and focus. And I've been able to do it because I don't have to work, right? That just isn't the case for most people. So I don't think it's fair to compare my path and my experience with what might be helpful for others. Yeah, and I would want to note here, so you pointed <clears throat> at the study and I, I, this might be the same study or it might be a similar one, but I know that they have begun doing testing with MDMA, which is, you know, street name ecstasy. Correct. Um, Molly is another name it goes by. And they've taken soldiers with severe PTSD. They put them through three sessions with taking MDMA. And they take the MDMA, you know, it kicks in, whatever, half an hour, 45 minutes, hour later. And then they sit down with a therapist and they get to talk about their trauma, their PTSD. And when the three sessions are over, the study showed that 76% of soldiers had no PTSD. It was gone. And um, a recognition that PTSD, generally speaking, the way we handle trauma today in our modern medical system and in our, in our philosophy around medicine and therapy and how we help, you can't really get rid of PTSD. And you can minimize it a little bit and you can give people tools and resources to cope and to when it, when it kind of attacks them and gives them anxiety, they can do some thought processes to kind of back away from that, but, but never to get rid of it. Here you have people within a short amount of time ridding themselves of something that has weighed on them deeply. Now, the argument could be that if someone had a 
deep meditation practice, they could get to the same conclusion at the end of that somewhere, deal with that. Now, but I would throw out that if we could help people get through it in three weeks, rather than 10 years of meditation, that we ought to take advantage of the medicines that are available and help people overcome things quicker and sooner, if that allows them now to go the next 10 years, not having that burden on them and allows them to move into healthier spaces of life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And two things. Number one, you explained that perfectly. Number two, well, that's, no, that's not number one. That's introduction. Number one, <laughs> after I learned about that study and the details of that study, um, it has convinced me that there is a proper use for these kinds of drugs. And there are a few people that I work with that suffer from PTSD. And I've given them all sorts of re- non-drug resources, and I've worked with them in meditation and so forth. And I have to admit, it's a, it's a long-term, tedious process. It is a very difficult thing for most people to really develop a fruitful substantive meditation practice. Absolutely. So based on what you just said, I'm now recommending that people study this, uh, you know, this ecstasy study and find a therapist and, and look into that. So I've been convinced that there is a productive use for, yeah. for, for some of these substances. Yeah. On the, we haven't gotten to sex yet, but, but several of the sex addiction clinics in Utah have hired me to teach meditation to groups of their clients, believing that mindfulness and meditation would help them. And I've, I've done that off and on over several years. And I finally stopped doing it because it just wasn't productive. People just, particularly people that are brought into a clinic because their wife's going to divorce them if they don't get over the sexual addiction, right? They're under tremendous duress. Their life's thrown up in the air and it's in chaos. And it just isn't the environment for them to take on mindfulness and meditation, and so I just didn't find what I was doing to really be solving the problem, except for maybe one in a hundred. So I, I just haven't engaged in it anymore. If you told me there was a drug that could have the same impact on sexual addiction as there is on PTSD, I'd probably be promoting it. Yeah. And, and so let me make one more comment about drugs and then let's segue into talking about sex. So I'm, again, I, I understand the perspective that you may push back and say, okay, if these are used with the full intent of stepping away from ego, or at least looking at your ego, examining human behavior, that there is successes there and these things can be used as tools. And I I feel you acknowledging that. I'm simply going to state that in my own life, I want to be careful because I try to to not get too specific because there's always people ready to pounce. But as a grown adult, my experience watching or utilizing to whatever degree conscious altering tools is both recreational as well as introspective inner work. And, and I, I want to make a space where I say there's value to that, both enjoying your life, making friendships, and again, using these things responsibly. I'm not talking about being crazy. And, and, and I would only define crazy. And let's get to that too, maybe for a moment and establish this. Getting crazy to me is when you are in your ego, manipulating others, coercing others, uh, when you are um, causing harm and trauma to somebody with some sort of maliciousness. And I think first half of life, we don't even really know we're doing it. But now looking back, I know I was doing it. I know I was being deceptive to people. I was being manipulative. I was, um, people were my access to changing the world the way, into the way I wanted it to be. 
And I would try to convince my kids, try to convince my wife, try to convince my coworkers, try to convince my friends to do their life around me in a way that I would get pleasure and joy. And if it meant I had to convince my friend who likes Mexican to not go to the Mexican restaurant and us go to the Italian restaurant instead, because that's my favorite place to go. Right. And so when it comes to sex or drugs or hurting other people, like all of these things, these substances or practices can be used to manipulate others into doing things. Date rape drugs, for instance, we're talking about drugs. You can go to the extreme of using a drug to get sexual pleasure from somebody else by messing up their inhibitions and um, messing up their uh, willpower or ability to perceive the situation for the risk that it is. That's not what I'm talking about. Those are all bad. And, and I would agree with you hundred percent okay. where I'm, where I'm at is that for folks in the second half of life who have an inner, inner sense of wisdom about them and want to move through the world responsibly, I think there is room to use these things as both tools and as recreational at the same time or even separate, and that those have a value to a life well-lived. Yeah, so <clears throat> we're, in the, we're in the realm here of fun and pleasure, okay? And so a lot of times when I go to teach a meditation seminar and people don't know who I am, they really are expecting this very calm, quiet person just kind of floating around the room, uh, very <laughs> measured, very controlled, yeah. You know, everything, peace and harmony. And they're quite stunned when I'm yelling, screaming, dancing, jumping, uh, laughing, singing. I mean, all of that goes on in my meditation seminars. And it just, it throws people way off because they're, they had this image of monks, you know, sitting around doing nothing but Wisdom is quiet and it only speaks every 45 minutes and shares one sentence. Everybody goes ooh and ah, and then, right. and then it's quiet again, right? Right, right. Now, <laughs> that's not me. And I've discovered that genuine spiritual living, genuine spiritual practice empowers you to enjoy life, to experience pleasure, and dang it, choose, consciously choose the egoic fun you want to enjoy, okay? Now, Amen. Yeah. The, the idea is to crucify the ego in the big teaching, right? And, yeah, and yeah. be reborn in the image of Christ within. I, yeah. I'm, that's, I'm fully into that. Yeah, and, and I agree with you. However, we still have an ego. If we didn't have an ego, we couldn't interface with this world. We would just disappear and be gone, right? So there's a little Phil guy that has an ego, and he has certain life experiences, and he takes pleasure in certain things. And um, so some people are quite shocked, um, you know, when they only experience me in teaching meditation and so forth, to find out I'm a gun fanatic and I love to shoot and collect guns. They get quite shocked and surprised. I'm, I'm a college football fanatic. I'm a Florida Gator fanatic and I collect football helmets and I, and I collect a variety of things. It's like I'm supposed to not have things. I love to collect things. I collect Native American flutes because I love flute music. And I just want to say here too, sports is such a dualistic, tribalistic oh, yes. thing, right? And oh, I love absolutely. sports too. I'm a huge Browns fan. Yeah. So you do college sports. I love the pros. And uh, I realize every day that I'm just involved in another tribe, right? Oh, yeah. And, and now there are people for whom if they don't have a core, a solid, stable core, these things can push them around. Compulsions, addictions, you know, it just inappropriate expression of things. Yeah. But if you're settled Agreed. deep within inside, there, there is absolutely nothing wrong with enjoying many of what I would call the ego pleasures of life 
because even awake an awakened person has an ego and they have to interact with other people at an ego level. You just want to do it in a healthy, fun way, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fully. So uh, let's move into sex. And um, I hear you saying that, you know, you're not anti-sex, right? Like you, you're married, you've... You've well, got, you've had, right. So you've had sex yeah. before, right? right? So. Once, once a year, whether I need it or not. <laughs> and so there not can Jesus. be an extreme, right? There are these religious groups, for instance, that on both sides of the extreme, which is, you know, be complete sexual abstinence. Sex is something bad. And, and then there's the other extreme, which is just completely do anything you want. Right. You know, work to get, you know, bet anybody out there. And, and both of those are unhealthy. And I think you would absolutely agree with that. And I, I want the audience to know I would absolutely agree with that. Where I would maybe differ from you is that I think also sex has the same power to poke at our ego. And, and what I mean by that is we all have feelings. Our ego has a feeling of ownership in a relationship. On the first half of life, I owned my wife and she owned me. And I, she in her head goes, he is responsible to behave a certain way because he's my husband and these are the things he needs to do. These are the things he needs not to do. And I'm doing the very same thing to her. And when you start to open up to each other about your real true self, like this is who I am. These are my wants. These are my needs. These are my desires. These are, these are the traumas I experienced as a child. These are the, these are the resentments I had. The, and you start to say like, hey, I've pretended the first 20 years to be exactly what you needed me to be so that you could be comfortable. And here I come to you now, I'm 35 years old, and I'm not built the way you thought I was. Here's who I am. And then she goes, yep, you know what? This is who I am. And I'm not exactly the way you thought I was either. And when you start to give each other room to be yourself, again, in healthy ways, we're not talking about coercion or manipulation. We're not talking about um, treating another person as property. Like when you start to, and I don't want to necessarily get into specifics because I think everybody has these and everybody has different specifics in them, but the principles are the same, which is that we go through the first half of life pretending. And when we start to be vulnerable, when we start to be honest with each other, we have to start living with the fact that our partner is a human being who isn't built and programmed exactly the way we thought they were when we married him when we were 19 years old. And that society requires us to look and behave certain ways so as to be acceptable and to keep the system moving and yet really deep down, none of us are programmed in those ways exactly. We all have some difference, right? People have fetishes. People have um, certain kinds of traumas that have happened to them that make it more difficult to sexually express themselves in a relationship. Some people have body shame issues. In fact, most people do. Some people have um, different degrees of sexuality within them. Some people are very asexual or closer to that side of the scale. Some people are very sexual. And when we give space in relationships for our partner to show up as they are responsibly, but to show up as they are and to not think of ourselves as owning them, it does force us to do the inner work. I have to deal with feelings of 
am I manipulating if I judge my partner for masturbation, for instance, right? If I, if my partner has, you know, goes, gets up at four o'clock in the morning to go watch porn on the computer and hides it from me, why is that happening? Right? Like, why is that person doing that behavior? And, and is that person doing something unhealthy? And am I doing something unhealthy that makes them feel as though that's how they have to express themselves? Right? Because I don't make room for them to be a healthy sexual being and to talk openly and honestly about what they're, what they want to do and how they want to do it. And so I think whether it's feelings of ownership, feelings of jealousy, feelings of shame and guilt, feelings of, um, feelings of, and it goes back to the ownership of needing to limit my partner to show up exactly how I need them to be so I can feel safe and secure. I think when two people who are in a relationship start to be more honest about their real selves and their sexuality, they begin to be able to talk openly and there is inner, there is deep inner work because I've had to do it with me and my wife over the last two, three, four years, where we start to be honest with each other and have to deal with some of those things I just mentioned and doing introspective work because I now am going to make space for my partner to not be what I needed them to be, but to show up as they are and to accept them as the full, complex, intricate, messy person that they are. Does that make sense? Yep. Wow. This is going to be difficult. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. Let me think about where to jump in on that. Um, pro- the 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 proper expression of sexuality—that's that's kind of the issue here, I guess. Uh, I I have a problem, for example, particularly in the church, when you've got heterosexual married men and women telling either unmarried people uh, or gay people that they can have no sexual expression whatsoever, even right. private. Right. Right. Even right. Private. Right. Even right. Even touching yourself and and having the only access that some people have to sexual pleasure right. becomes something that God is looking at and frowning upon and judging you by. Yeah, and I find that horrendous. And um, I, I grew up Catholic, but as a military chaplain, I had a lot of Catholic priest friends. And this whole business of celibacy among Catholic priests. Well, as I got to know some of the personal lives of many of these Catholic priests, what do I discover? Holy cow, the, the lack of sexual expression coupled with sexual repression uh, caused them to malfunction and to act out in many, many, many different ways. Sometimes it was uh, excessive use of alcohol. Sometimes it was um, experimentation with each other. Sometimes it, it obviously was child sexual abuse. Um, so, you know, the those things are going to come out somewhere, right? Like if right. you if you don't allow people healthy ways in which to interact with their sexuality, then those folks are just in the in the darkness, in the shadows, obscured from the light. They're going to have those things come out anyway. That energy, that sexual energy, the eros, is a very powerful force. It's part of our creative energy. It is intended to be channeled into loving things and into deep spiritual things. I mean, there's a whole area of spiritual development that tries to harness the power of Eros to accelerate spiritual awakening. Um, I I don't find many successful at that, but I know it works. And um, so there's no question that we demonize certain things, masturbation being one, that, that loads people up with all kinds of shame and guilt and then and then the problem of where does this energy go? And it normally pops out in an unhealthy way. Uh, the question is how, how, you know, what do we start including in the opening up of the sexual basket, so to speak? So I'm obviously not, I mean, even as a young institute director, um, 
this might seem like an odd thing. I wanted to talk about modesty for a minute because it was such a big thing in Mormonism. And in the last couple of years, um, in the post LDS community, a lot of Mormon women, Mormon women, active Mormon women, and post LDS women, a couple of years ago, got into this big modesty discussion where women, you know, girls ought to dress however they want, naked, half naked, sexually provocative. It doesn't matter. The man should be completely in control of himself. And that just pushed me too far because, you know, it was going from one extreme to another extreme. And there ought to be mutual responsibility. I mean, it's just a biological fact that a 16-year-old boy has got so many raging hormones. If, if, if a girl walks in with cleavage, you know, he's going to be excusing himself pretty soon. <laughs> you know, it's going to be – I had a kid who came to me, young institute student when I was at Auburn, and he stopped coming to the institute activities. Well, I wasn't enforcing a big modesty code on the female students, right? They're college students. They're adults. Uh, but this one girl was dressing rather provocatively. He couldn't come to the he, he couldn't come to the classes and the activities because he was always getting overstimulated, and then he's masturbating, and then he's feeling guilty and having to confess to the bishop. And now he's so, not now he's not taking the the sacrament, the sacrament of communion, right? So I said to him, "Look, I know what the church teaches, but here's my view. Okay, if you're masturbating every day and it controls your life, and you can't think of anything else, right? You're out of control. Okay, maybe we got a problem here. But if this is a normal." release of sexual tension and and you're not you know it's not interrupting the rest of your world please right don't, don't worry about it yeah and i sat down with the young lady and i said look i love you you participate great you're a cute girl just be aware you know you're so cute that when you dress this way this is the effect it has on some of the guys you know now maybe you care about that maybe you don't i'm just asking you to be aware of it you know well she toned it down a little um and it just kind of worked out. You know, you know what I'm saying? So I, I always think there ought to be mutual responsibility in these things. Uh, you brought up the pornography issue. Um, uh, I'm kind of hard on pornography only because of my experience. I, in marriage counseling, I have seen it destroy marriage after marriage after marriage. I have seen it consume the lives of many, many men. It it creates self-centeredness, selfishness. It destroys their ability to love and to get outside of themselves. So I know there are sex therapists that believe it can be used in positive and productive ways in a marriage. I'm not familiar with that. I can't, you know, I, I don't know what to say about that. I just know in my personal experience of counseling, it 99% of the time is a powerful, destructive force disrupting marriages. That's my experience with it. Yeah, part of being a human being is the propensity collectively to have compulsions, right? Ah, uh, true. And, and, and I think often those um, religions are making rules, they're making moral boundaries, they're, they're making stipulations about outward behaviors and deeming those outward behaviors as good or bad and creating an expectation within all of us so that when the wife marries the husband, her expectation inside the high demand fundamentalist religion is that those things are bad and not allowed and sinful. And so if my husband is masturbating or is, you know, watches porn, both the husband understands what's going to happen if he gets caught and how bad it is. And, and he's going to have to go talk to an ecclesiastical leader. Right. And, and the wife is in her head having all these expectations taught to her. And so their relationship around this issue is built around judgment and shame. And so when you have a component that is built around judgment and shame, and again, there are definitely addictions and compulsions, gambling addiction being one of them, for instance, where I don't think there's that much judgment and shame per se, and people still fall into the deep addiction and compulsion 
and lose their lives, right? Um, Following after that golden calf. But I think in a lot of these things that we deem compulsions, the compulsions solely exist because the relationship is built around judgment and shame. And that when we remove the judgment and shame, the compulsion moves back into a much healthier space where it, I would argue for many people, not everyone, for many people, it's no longer even a compulsion. And I'll use my own personal life. I certainly used pornography as a first half of life, married husband, father of children. And I did it without my wife knowing when I was my day off and she was at work. When I woke up in the middle of the night, I would go sit at the computer and watch for a little while. Um, it was a secret and it was a, and it was a compulsion and it was built around. I need, I had this energy that I needed to express as we talked about. And my, my married life within my religious construct didn't allow me to express that energy in healthy ways. And so that's what I'm doing. The moment my wife and I both go like, you know what? Forget what religion taught us. Let's figure this out. Let's just sit and talk about it. And, and the talk is that, oh, you are different than me. You have these energies. There's nothing wrong with masturbation. There's nothing wrong with sexual energy. There's nothing wrong with, uh, and, I'll, and I'm going to say that, there's nothing wrong with pornography if somebody isn't, doesn't have a compulsion and it is used uh, to enhance life for them. And the moment we took off the shame, and the judgment, we just completely rid ourselves of those two. It became something that wasn't even that desirable to involve myself in. It became something that maybe once every three or four weeks for half an hour, we'd watch it together. And we no longer, yeah, I know, right? Like, and we no longer, I, I no longer got up ever at four o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning or midnight to go look at pornography. Um, the moment we take off the shame and the judgment, Many of these kinds of behaviors in a healthy, responsible adult, they just move back into something that isn't addictive or compulsive. Yeah. Um, There is this weird dynamic that whether you have too much control or too much permission, you end up with the same result. It's kind of an odd deal. So there's the search for balance. Well, balance isn't easy to wisdom and experimenting and to find balance and religions typically don't want to give that space. They don't want people to have that kind of experimentation out of fear, you know, out of fear if somebody's going to fall off a cliff because there are people that do. Um, But yeah, it is about finding that balance. And when there's shame, when there's secrecy, when there's fear, it increases stress, stress increases compulsions. uh, And then there's more acting out and there's more of a likelihood that, that there's going to be inappropriate acting out where life is thrown out of balance um because it's taboo right like the taboo things in our society are the things that one side is judging the other side's feeling shame and when you add that you make something taboo and part of our genetics is that when something's not allowed we tend to find ways to go find it right absolutely absolutely um so yeah i I don't know what to say. I, t- I discourage pornography simply because my personal experience has been it's destructive 99% of the time. If you make a case to me that, hey, here's a 1% where it seems to work okay, I, you know, I'm right. not it's familiar the, the with that 1%, right. but yeah. I like you. I trust you. I, I you know, I respect you. I'm, I'm going to accept that. It's just not my experience, and it's, it's not something I would uh, encourage um, because I've seen the dark side so so predominantly. Yeah. And that that doesn't even, you know, we could do 10 hours of talking about 
besides me and my wife and our experience with pornography, we could talk about what that is in that industry and the harm and trauma it causes in that industry to folks who are participating um, and, and how watching yeah. it support, right? Like there's yeah. like, I'm, I, I recognize as we're having the conversation, there are facets of harm and trauma that we're not even touching on. I, I'm simply speaking to the shame and judgment and the healthiness right. of my own inner work as I also enjoy pornography. Does that make sense? Right. Oh yeah. I wasn't smart enough to bring up the, the impact on the workers. You know, right. The, right. And so yeah. I'm granting that while I may be doing good inner work while watching pornography every now and then, uh, I also realize that I'm also supporting harm and trauma in the world to some degree. Right. And so there is that facet as well. Right. Um, so again, I, I, you know, you know, I think the wisdom perspective here is too much control, too much permission. The, the, those are both a problem. Um, you end up with the same excess, so to yeah. speak. And, and the, and the extreme in the sexuality, and again, I, I want to talk on this because I think it is it is a topic that we need to at least address. The extreme in sexuality is like this open relationships, right? Ah. And, and so I'm here in Southern Utah, and I am deeply involved with the post-Mormon community here because I was a Mormon and to some degree still am, right? Like even though I'm out, I'm still sure. Mormon. And I see lots of different life paths that people live outside of the church. Once they deconstructed the system and they realized that all rules are arbitrary constructs, then we begin to say like, which rules really matter and which, which rules don't. And so the speed limit down the street does kind of matter because if we all drive at 180 mile an hour, we're going to have a lot more accidents, death, and trauma. But people are also going like, I'm a sexual being and I want to negotiate my sexuality differently. And so I see in the post-Mormon community down here that there is a segment of the population who have chosen to make space for open relationships. Now, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit in this direction. You know, I've, I've got friends that I sit down next to and hold their hand and watch a movie with and enjoy their companionship next to me and enjoy more intimacy with them than um, I know you're over there making faces. Yeah, you're, free, you're freaking me out. <laughs> no, I hear you. I know, and I want you to push back on you. That's fine. So I have friendships where I sit next to somebody and it's not my wife and I'm holding their hand and rubbing their shoulder and enjoying their, you know, friendship plus something, right? Um, and I, I find it to be very enjoyable and healthy. I don't, I don't have any problem with being responsible in that moment. Um, I'm not in my head trying to manipulate the person into having sex with me. I'm just enjoying a deeper level of intimacy than society has deemed as an arbitrary construct is permissible. And we have rules for reasons, right? Like society goes, look, we have a system here. The system needs to perpetuate. The system's more important than the individual. And if we allow individuals to run off the rails and do what they want, we end up with chaos and the system falls apart. And so systems are very big on wanting us to do things that maintain the system and keep us in the rat race moving along. I'm no longer embarrassed talking about that because it is an arbitrary construct. And I, I deeply believe that if we were to go back 200,000 years ago, that we sat around a fire and we all cuddled each other and told stories and danced. Um, and, and it only became wrong when it became destructive to the system and the tribe not perpetuating, right? Mm. And so rules came up. And I'm, I'm wise enough, I think, and maybe I'm arrogant, but I'm wise enough on this side of life to know how to be in that space responsibly. And I've also seen people, and again, I'm, I'm rambling here, but I've also seen people who in this area, again, they've left religion, they've deconstructed systems, they've wrestled with those same kinds of thoughts that I just laid out. They've chosen to go one step further 
and they are participating in open relationships. And so if the husband or the wife, they meet other couples or they meet individual people and there isn't uh, a boundary that they have to keep their sexual expression within the relationship of their marriage or their significant other, their partner, and they can express that in other ways. I've seen deep unhealthiness with that. And I've seen people who are doing deep inner work and seem to be navigating that very well and responsibly. And and I think it at least needs to be acknowledged that there are both sides of that. And we could argue whether the risk is so significant that, as you pointed out with with uh, pornography, that your your perception is that it is almost always bad. And maybe there's a few people who it benefits, but for the most part, it does destruction. And hence, the risk is so serious that if 100 people involve themselves and 90 end up causing more harm to their life, that it's better if we all just stay away from it and not find out who the 10 are that can make it. And maybe an open relationship is that same kind of thing. But I also hear those folks talking about the same idea of doing inner work on ego with jealousy and being happy for somebody else in the midst of them having a positive experience, even though your own person as, as, a, as ego wants to own the other person doesn't want them to do that. And so I, I want to acknowledge that there is some sort of inner work that can be done there. The debate would be, I guess, be, be what is the risk? What is the real tragedy, destruction in its path, and what is the real happiness and joy and feeling like you're growing that's going on? And I'm not close enough to that to know. Wow. So I, <clears throat> I hope as you continue to observe this, you'll report back to me once in a while. I'm very curious about how some of this open relationship plays out. So back in the 60s and 70s, we called this open marriage. There was a book, Open Marriage, and there was a movement, Open Marriage. It's like some of these things cycle. It didn't last because it didn't work. It turned out to be primarily disruptive. We're just re-resurrecting it under um, uh, polyamory. And this polyamory discussion is what has jazzed me up most recently from a podcast I listened a couple of weeks ago. So, wow. Um, you know what's interesting is my wife... Uh, she likes watching the show Married at First Sight. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah, with my it. wife yeah. and I have seen uh, one of the a couple of the seasons. Yes. And what's interesting is here are these modern couples. Almost all of them seem to be in these multiple sexual relationships, and they have been for some time. Many of them, and it, it's kind of they've kind of burned out on that, and now they're finding the need for sustained relationship and commitment, you know, to, to one person. So it's interesting. They go that direction and they find themselves drawn, <laughs> drawn back to, to that. And, and, um, and I want to let you continue, but I just want to note too, that even the, the monogamous lifestyle with all of its benefits also 55% of the time ends traumatically, yes, right? Like it ends it in does. divorce. And so even if we were to both agree that the least amount of risk is in a stable monogamous relationship, at the end of the day, only 45% of people at age 70 are still together. Yeah, no, it's still high risk. We don't do marriage well. No, we it's, don't. It's uh, actually pretty sad. Um, now, at the risk of too much self-disclosure here um, and possible death and dismemberment, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> um, my wife and I have been married for 43 years. When we first got married, I was a little afraid of marriage because my sense was, my observation was, there was this period of intense sexual exciting expression. And then after three years, four years, five years, seven years, whatever it was, you, you had kind of played it out with one person. You know what I'm saying? 
I mean, when you've seen and experienced one person physically and sexually in every possible way, it's like, you know, I love strawberry ice cream, but man, if I ate four gallons a day, I, I wouldn't want it for a while. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, again, I'll let you continue. I, I want to jump in, <laughs> which is we humans love novelty. We love variation. Right. We crave it. Right. And if we asked a hundred human beings, what's the most enjoyable thing on the planet? I think the number one answer would be sex. And yet none of us want to have sex all day long. At least I don't. At least I don't. I don't think you probably do. Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, it's fun for about an hour. And then at that point, like, let's go watch the football game, right? So, so even the best thing on the planet that we all collectively agree on, we, we at some point go, okay, I don't want to do that again for another day. I'll, I want to wait another 24 hours before I try to do that again. Like we want to do something else. And so it should be acknowledged that none of us want to have the same thing over and over again, whether it's your favorite plate of food or whether it's uh, an enjoyable sexual experience with your partner. Right. Now, I agree. Um, so I had this fear. I, I had this fear that after five years or six years, and certainly by the time we became middle age, that we would be kind of the boring older couple that you know enjoys each other and does things together, but there wouldn't be much of a vibrant, active sex life. That, that was kind of my expectation. And as the years went by, it just continued to amaze me and surprise me that our sexual life was vibrant, passionate, exciting. Every time, year after year, 30 years, 40 years, 43 years. And over the last 10 years, we've been reflecting on how was this possible because it wasn't my expectation. And we realized that what happened was our sexual expression really, really was an expression of a soul-level deep love. Love doesn't get old. Love doesn't dry up. And if your sexuality can be an expression of, of pure, pure love, it act, in my experience, my testimony, uh, is that sexuality maintains its passion, its vibrancy, its aliveness, its freshness. That's been our experience. Now, I look around me and how often do I see that? We just don't see it happening hardly at all. doesn't mean we're especially wonderful people. It just means that somehow in our joint spiritual quest, we've discovered a soul level love that has empowered our relationship in that, in that area. So, you know, for us, that's good news. And for us, there's not this kind of perceived need for external partner. And, and then the question in my mind is, is not one person worthy of or substantive enough or to, to, to be worthy of a lifelong commitment? You know what I'm saying? Kind of an exclusive commitment. Uh, that, that torments me a little bit. Some people obviously are mismatched. They make poor decisions at a young age. It's not going to work, period, right? I'm not for welding two people to get together based on poor decision making. But it seems like that a human being ought to be worthy of a lifelong commitment, I, I guess. That's kind of my sense. Yeah. And, and I, I share in your story and I would push back. So I agree with you. My wife and I have been married 23 years and I'm by far, no ifs, ands, or buts, by far more in love with her today than I was the day I married her. And, and I don't want to be with anyone else like my entire life. That's the person I want to be with. Um, at the same time, we've come to moments in our marriage where it just wasn't working anymore because our marriage had met a point where I no longer wanted my real self to just continue to fit in. I didn't want to compromise myself to be what she needed me to be 
if it caused me turmoil and disruption inside in a way that I couldn't escape it. And so in each of those moments, in each of those moments, the two of us, you know, it generally starts with a giant fight and a fight that is heading in the direction of, we can't do this anymore. And then we move to a place of like, we want to do this longer because we love each other and we're committed. Mm -hmm. And so now we have a vulnerable conversation about what, what do you need? What do I need? What's not working? What is the tension? And as we've had those conversations, we've been able to remove shame and judgment around whatever part of one of us needs to show up differently. And, and we've, and again, I, I think too, people leave a religion and that was the thing that bound them together. That was the thing that they shared in common. Or for some people, the empty nest, right? Like you put your energy into raising your children and seeing them become responsible, successful adults. And now that's all you had. And now there's nothing in common anymore. I'm lucky in that my wife and I at every one of these moments says, we both say, we still love each other. We still like each other. We're still enjoying this. Let's keep this going. So let's adapt. And every one of those adaptations is difficult. It requires one of us to give a little so that the other one can take a little. And so we're compromising and negotiating. When we've removed shame and judgment around each one of these moments and said, okay, let's show up differently and see if we still like each other and enjoy each other. We so happen at the end of 23 years here, we still happen to be loving each other and enjoying each other. And it, it's deeper and bigger and better than it was before. Does that make sense? I understand. So, um, so yeah, I, I would say I agree with you. And, and we've also had moments where we've had to do things differently and it's worked. Right. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting. Most of us in the, and I don't know if this is a fair parallel or not, but most of us um, on the critical side of Mormonism, I mean, one of the things that drives us the most crazy and that challenges our faith the most was the whole experience of Mormon polygamy. And, um, I think what gets to us is the the um, uh, dishonoring or the diminishment of women, really, right? If I can collect yeah. five or six, yeah. what, what does that mean in terms of the equal value of that person? Um, the polyamory is getting to me. Now, so the selling point, as I understand it for polyamory, is there's no coercion, there's no control, there's no secrets, it's, you know, it's open knowledge. Well, that's the old open marriage, which in my opinion, prove not to work. We're going to do it again under a different title and maybe even add consciousness to it. I, um, you can tell I'm still a bit um, discomforted by yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. But the other thing that comes, the, the other thing, like I was listening to this comment recently, it was also put in the context of, I don't even know that I believe in marriage anymore and I don't want to have children anymore. And why is that? Because it's too binding of a relationship. It's too constrictive. It's too restrictive. And... Um, so now we're getting rid of, of what we would call, you know, traditional marriage and even the desire to have children. So then my question is, where does society go when people either don't want to have children, don't want to have the commitment, and it's serious business, right, to, to raise children. And at the same time, you're, you have the freedom to move from one partner to another. I mean, how can a child, how is a child to be raised in a situation like that? Do, do we care about our impact on future generations? Do we care about our impact on on our own children, right? I mean, if I'm dallying around with polyamorously with three other women, what what message does that communicate to my children? Does it stabilize or create instability? And yeah. so I have so many concerns in yeah. that area that I, I'm just discomforted. Yeah. And I would know, and I want to I be fair here. So I agree with you that 
there should be way more for those folks who choose that lifestyle. There should be way more than your own sexual satisfaction and, and, and pursuing variation and novelty in the sexual arena. There should be other things to consider, which children I think is a huge one. I think um, many people get into that lifestyle and one spouse is doing it for the other and not really on board. And then you've got huge trauma coming. I want to I want to acknowledge too that the American Western society does it one way, and that there are societies out there. Another a good book is Sex at Dawn, and uh, the author one of the authors there's a male and a female or a husband and wife. I don't remember the wife's name, but the husband's name is Christopher Ryan, I believe. And I should remember the wife's name. It's unfair of me not to store that in my memory. <laughs> right? I store so many things in my memory that I can recall, and that one I don't choose. But um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna try to remember her name too because I, I mentioned the book a lot. In that book, they are going over sexuality among human beings across time and space, both both as much as we can know from the beginning of time through sociology and archaeology and all those kinds of things, and as much as we can know across the breadth of this moment all across the world. And in that book, they talk about certain societies that do have open relationships. The, the women are having sex with multiple men. And so the men are inseminating the woman and and a child is produced. And these are um, not the modern world. These are tribes of people that are, are much more primitive than us. And the children actually grow up very healthy. There's lots of trauma in their societies too, by the way. And it's a whole different kind of trauma. But the children tend to have a very good upraising in terms of understanding parenthood. And they look to all of these men as their father. And, and each of these men take an active role in the raising of these children. And so just a recognition that there are people out there doing it differently and it works better or worse across different societies. I think what you're pointing at is this Western American society and how, and how much risk there is for the children of these relationships, which I would agree with you a hundred percent. Right. Well, you gave me another book to read. I'll look at it. Thank you. Yeah. Great my, book. My, um, you know, when it comes down to it, I, I, and maybe I am stuck in kind of this Western model, um, it seems that the more we lose core family, so to speak, the more unstable society becomes. That, that Yeah, and, I, and I, I agree with you. And the system is a set of arbitrary constructs that often revolve around the subtle imposing of shame and judgment so that we all do what the authorities need us to do to perpetuate the system. So th- now the question becomes really big, which is, do we, do we help people move into second half of life and give them freedom to develop their own inner authority, knowing that that's also going to involve a lot of people who aren't capable yet right. and whose lives now become, become messy and tragic and wrought with dysfunction and trauma, knowing that we all do need to move to developing our own inner, inner authority losing trust in the tribal authorities who have imposed themselves, letting go of some of those arbitrary constructs because it does lead to both good and bad, right? Like if we're all believers in these three religions, we all tend to not kill. And when we do, there's judgment and shame and we go to prison. And and if we just let people be themselves and when there's harm, hold people accountable, we also run the risk of people who aren't mature enough or wise enough making serious mistakes and messing up our society and system even more. Yeah. So we're, yeah, we're back to finding balance, you know, balance between permission and control. Yeah. Um, 
I obviously think conservative Christianity and Mormon Christianity is too controlling based on yeah. fear. Yeah. Anything you do based on fear tends to backfire and malfunction. So you've got to give people freedom, even though there's danger. You've got to give people freedom to to learn, to grow, and you know that there's going to be some poor decisions made that have life-altering consequences. For me, you know, I always come back to the spiritual principle of is this desire, attitude, behavior, practice – is it increasing my ability to love and to bring out the best in other people or is it degrading it in some way? I mean, I try to, you know, is it developing the higher nature or is it, is it moving more toward the lower nature? And, you know, I try to use that as the, as the guide. Um, and I think that's it. I, th I think you hit the nail on the head, which is as everybody tries to show up in their life in their own individual way, because every human being is different and, we try to incorporate um, these fundamental, pre, you know, these fundamental uh, ideas of goodness and growth and kindness and compassion and introspection and shadow work and whatever. You know, name a thousand good things. It really does boil down to each individual looking in the mirror and going, "Am I utilizing the world for my own pleasure, at the expense of destruction behind me, and in any specific area?" Because you may be living a good life in nine places and in one place having total dysfunction. Or in this area of my life or my life collectively, am I growing? Am I, do people, are people being treated better by me? Am I, am I helping people to grow rather than seek out my own individual needs and wants? Um, and again, I think that's a wrestle that everybody's going to have to do kind of on their own. But I think you and I would agree that if you look in the mirror and you see harm and trauma and tragedy being left in the wake of your, of your ego, then something's wrong and it needs adjusted. And if on the other hand, where I think I push back on you today is to say, if there is some sense of balance and my balance maybe looks different than your balance. And I look in the mirror and I see, I see at least segments of my life getting better and the parts um, that aren't I'm aware of and I'm working on. And, and again, growth is sometimes faster or slower in various areas. If I see a life well lived and I see people being positively affected, and I see myself personally growing, then I'm going to want to make space for myself and others who look in the mirror and see that to, to, to feel that that's an acceptable way to live out their life and their journey. And, and that it, with one life to live, how do we decide what is the best way to live the one life one has, right? Like I'm 42 years old. And if I'm lucky, I'm halfway. It's already half over. Right. If I'm lucky, and if I'm unlucky, I have weeks or months or a few years left and I die of a heart attack or a stroke or get in a car accident. If I'm lucky, I've got 42 more years to go. And, and, I, and I want to mix in as much egoic pleasure with moving through the world responsibly, trying to grow, trying to learn, trying to be better. And I want to mix those two together. Um, and I'm content that for me, that's the life well-lived. And, and I also look at you and say, he's living the life well-lived as well. And you're doing it very different than me. Um, and hence, because of that, I now want to look around and see other people who are doing it different than both of us. And I want to let the wake of positivity and blessing versus the wake of destruction and trauma be the merits by which I judge whether they've lived the life well-lived. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, I think there's such variety in creation because it was intended Yeah. and there's variety in human beings. Now, you know, my wife and I love flowers 
and she plants flowers and we have certain ones that we like and you know there's a tremendous variety now you know there's some common things good soil fertilizer water right there are standards that keep the flower alive but they are individual expressions and so there's always this balance between the stand the, the core foundational things that make life stable and possible but then the variety of expression too and um so again we're into that search for balance from where we are you know from from who we are and the differences and so forth and i i think that's i think that's legitimate there just always needs to be that caution for self-deception yeah yeah based we, on the we ego. do deceive ourselves easily don't we um you know i like you know jesus talks about pure heart that's not primarily about sexuality as we make it but it's about a heart that's open to the goodness of god and the goodness of life and that allows that goodness to flow do you see it's not obstructed by the lower nature and so forth um i do appreciate the teaching by uh, i forget his, his name is fritz hoff schoon he's a famous german perennial philosophy teacher but um he made the statement that there's no wisdom without virtue well Okay, I love that statement, but how we define virtue, do you see, is the discussion, right? It's the discussion we're having. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In the end, I, th I think it boils down to genuine love, the development of godlike love, yeah. the nurturing and the bringing out the best of others with respect, dignity, caring, and is what I'm doing contributing to that. Um, Amen. I, I, you know, religion tends to narrow that down and it becomes stifled and then it creates the same problem as I think uh, just rampant permissiveness does. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, Jesus is so interesting. Um, uh, Jesus in, in a conversation with time with the religious leaders that he was always in conflict with, he accuses them of, of condemning John the Baptist because he was an ascetic, right? He's living this austere life in terms of what he was eating and drinking and wearing and the, his association with people, they criticize him for being out of step, but then they criticize Jesus for quote, eating and drinking and, and socializing. And there's strong, I think there's good evidence that Jesus loved and enjoyed dancing. So, so here's this Jesus guy who's eating, drinking, socializing with all levels of society. Um, and they criticize him. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and we don't have it, but my gut tells me, and I think you would probably agree, that we don't get the record of it. And again, religion has put Jesus on, whoever Jesus was in his mortal flesh, put him on a pedestal and don't allow him to have some of the human passions oh, absolutely. that are available. And yet we also religiously make the argument that Jesus was susceptible to all human passions, right? But we don't, but we ought to acknowledge that the likelihood, if we're just going to be secular historical data-based, the likelihood was that Jesus expressed his sexual energy somewhere too. Well, I, you know, I'm one of the few that think that he did have an intimate relationship with Mary Magdalene. Uh, you see evidence of that in the Gnostic gospels and so forth. Yeah. And that doesn't bother me in one no. bit. No, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, you and I talked about a little bit, I brought up the subject of antinomianism yesterday, which is, means anti-law, which means a, a person is no longer bound by moral laws. And it goes as far as to glorying in violations of the standard law, but still seeing yourself as spiritually stable. And Jesus is often used as an example of antinomianism because he violated so many social and religious constructs and traditions and 
behaviors and so forth. But if you're fair, you know, he also said, go and sin no more, right? He had, uh, you know, good master, what should I do? Well, keep the commandments. I mean, I'm sure he had the legitimate basic commandments in mind. What he rebelled against were the man-made constricted BS that was being imposed on people. So I, I think in Jesus, there was that balance of, of living life joyfully connected with God, connected with nature, connected with people in, in a enjoyable, fun way, uh, but living responsibly, you know, and in love and so forth. I think that that balance is obvious in him. And Paul in Romans goes through this, you know, the law is weak. The law can't cut it. Rules and commandments and moral constrictors are not ultimately saving. You know, it's, it's, uh, and then he said, you know, then he got the pushback of, well, gee, if we don't have to be obedient to the law anymore, then we can do whatever we want in sin. And his response was, God forbid, right? We're going to toss out the law because ultimately it can't save. I want you to live in and by grace, meaning what? You're living in the flow of God's presence and love. We would call this dharma in the Eastern traditions, right? So I'm going to live according to dharma, according to grace, which means right. I'm going to find a way to live according to the presence and the loving nature of God. That's the rule. Do you see? That's the only commandment. Yeah. That's what Jesus said, right? Right. That's right. the commandment, to love. Right. And, um, but out of that should flow the kind of behavior we're talking about, right? Right. 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 No, I'm with you. Um, why don't we end on that note? Because I think, I think we're both in agreement here kind of at the end. And I want to say, just for the record, Phil, and I, so the audience hears it, this is the best conversation I've had. I think across all the podcasts that I've done, uh, across all the interviews I've held, this was one of the most enjoyable, and I think when it gets to the heart of like what we're talking about, the human experience, the best conversation uh, I've ever been a part of. So I want to, I don't want to say thank you for your time. I really love that yesterday we're talking on the phone and we're kind of pushing back against each other. And, you know, we're both going like, look, this, this is a great conversation. Let's, let's try to replicate that. And I think we did uh, and went way further and, you know, kind of pushing against each other. I think both of us are going to walk away thinking about a few things and um, that I can't, I don't think you can come out any better from a, a deep, mature adult conversation than to have things to think about afterward and to reflect on. Um, I don't know if you have any closing comments or thoughts, but otherwise I'll just, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll end the interview and I'll put the audio up and let people give it a listen and uh, love to hear the but, comments yeah, and thoughts from, from hey, listen, I'll just conclude with one thought. Genuine spiritual life empowers us to experience the fullness of life. And I mean, fun, I mean, deep pleasure. Uh, one of my favorite verses in the Upanishads, ancient, ancient yoga text, it essentially says that a person who transcends the egoic consciousness and lives in the light of God, and I'm going to I'm going to quote here, they move at will, meaning consciously. They move at will laughing, playing, and rejoicing. And if the spiritual life is not full of laughing, playing, and rejoicing, it's not a spiritual life. Uh, you come to our house, we love animals, we love art, we love music, flowers, and, you know, we love it, enjoy it, we play. It's That's what spiritual life should be. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Amen. All right. Phil McLemore, uh, appreciate your time. Uh, I'll leave some resources so folks can find you. Um, and get in touch with you if, if they want to follow up and, sure. and try to find out more about the things that you've said. Uh, what a great conversation. Um, we went about an hour and a half there, and I just thought that was just all, 
all substance, all good stuff. And so thank you for your time and appreciate the conversation today, my friend. Well, thank you. You've made space for this and I appreciate it. Love it. Love it. Anytime. Like, let's have you back on and, and do this again around something else. I, I love this. Okay. Uh, I love this format. <laughs> okay. Okay. Have a great day. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been another Almost Awakened episode. Check us out at almostawakened.org where you can check out past episodes, make a donation to keep this podcast running, email us a question or comment, or find out more about the resources shared in today's episode. For coaching opportunities or extra support, visit nonsensespirituality.com to meet with certified spiritual director, Brittany Hartman. 